The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. you simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host, and today I'm delighted to be joined by my dear friend Dr. Peter Hammonds. Let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I am with you, yes. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And um, after finishing the series on central banking, the Stephen Mitford Goodson book, on uh, the enslavement of mankind via central banking. Uh, Peter has another Stephen Mitford Goodson book for us. And the title of the show, again, um, the link to get that book will be in the post for this show, so please check that out. The title of the show is The Real Story of South Africa's Greatest Prime Minister, Hendrik Verward, and Why He Was Assassinated. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off today? Stephen Mitford Goodson was a personal friend and a popular regular speaker in our Reformation Society in Cape Town. And he explained to me over meals that he had gotten to writing the story of Henrik Verwut and Jan Smuts because of whether related to the war on the bankers. So because South Africa's Reserve Bank was instituted by uh, General Jan Smuts, he did a biography on Jan Smuts, found out why was Jan Smuts the man who introduced a Rothschild usury bank to South Africa. And because Hendrik Foote was the Prime Minister who instituted a commission of inquiry into the origins and nefarious activities of the Reserve Bank and alternatives to it, um, and was assassinated shortly after doing so, making clear his desire to get rid of the South African Reserve Bank, he decided to do a biography on Hendrik Foote. So, um, understand that here we've gotten Stephen Mitford Goodson, an economist who was once director of the South African Reserve Bank for nine years. So he's a real insider. He's a whistleblower who wrote the book Inside the South African Reserve Bank. And of course, what we've just gone through in the previous five weeks on the history of central banking and the enslavement of mankind. These are ancillary books that are very helpful. And I think biography is always interesting because we learn through examples, examples of excellence in the case of Henry Kavut and not so excellent in the case of Jan Smuts, but a great man, even if not necessarily a good man, uh, but he certainly had great impact and that would be a subject for future series. Jan Smuts, who was the only man that I know of who's a leader in both the First and the Second World War 
a, a key leader in starting both the League of Nations and the United Nations. And he wrote the, the preamble to the uh, United Nations. So Jan Smuts is a major player and someone who really was one of the globalists. So uh, that's more of an expose. But today on Hendrik, he was without doubt South Africa's greatest prime minister. And that's the subtitle of Stephen's book. Hendrik French for what South Africa's greatest prime minister. And he calls himself his greatest prime minister because of what he achieved economically and so many other ways. Under Hendrik Wood, South Africa reached a stage where we owed nothing to anyone, no national debt whatsoever. And we had a growth rate of 8% per annum. I mean, absolutely staggering growth rate under Hendrik Wood. The whole country has put on electricity grid and he started all kinds of hydroelectric power plants and made South Africa not just energy independent, but um, we were a gross export of food and minerals. And South Africa was, imagine reaching a stage of such economic growth that you owed nothing to anyone. And uh, you can understand why the bankers didn't like him, <laughs> because they liked debt, because when you control the debt, you control everything. And uh, remember the uh, saying of Stephen Goodson that with a gun, you can rob a bank, but with a bank, you can rob a whole nation. And uh, I think Hendrik Wood came to understand that. So Hendrik Verwoerd was murdered almost 60 years ago in 1966. Our Prime Minister of South Africa was stabbed to death in the chambers of the House of Assembly in our Parliament building down Cape Town, sitting in his Prime Minister's seat in Parliament, uh, a Communist Party member, Chafandas, um, who was banned from the country, but somehow had a privileged position of being in the parliament as a messenger so he could walk in and out amongst the people in the, even the chambers during um, parliamentary sittings. And he was able to reach the uh, prime minister and stab him multiple times in such a way that there was no way he could recover. Uh, in other words, he had been trained professionally as to exactly what to strike with and how to um, make sure that his targets could not survive the brutal knife attack. And it was the kind of savage attack that um, the banksters tend to reserve for people who've really hurt them, like um, you can think of Tsar Nicholas II of Russia and his family who were targeted for brutal assassination in 1918. And uh, interestingly, even the date of the assassination of Hendrik Wood was occultic and showed the Sabbatean roots. He was assassinated on the 6th of the ninth month of 1966. And in fact, the people who organized his assassination um, were very specific when he needed to be assassinated, the exact date and time and all the rest of it. And uh, But why he was assassinated is the whole subject of this book. So Hendrik Wood was one of the, not just one of the greatest statesmen in South Africa's history, but probably one of the greatest statesmen of the modern world. And uh, he has been compared with President Paul Kruger, of the South African Republic, or the Transvaal, who opposed the British, who was a giant of a statesman, and four times elected president of the South African Republic of Transvaal. The most conspicuous figure in the history of South Africa, Paul Kruger, was the epitome of South Africa in the war against the British in the Second Anglo-Boer War. He also played a role, major role in the First Anglo-Boer War too. Well, uh, Favut was for eight years Prime Minister of South Africa, and he very much epitomized South Africa, and his assassination 
went along with assassinating Sadovka itself. As Stephen said, a knife wasn't just plunged into promise, but into the heart of South Africa, and a lot of our future was betrayed at that point. Um, so Henrik Wurt and President Paul Kruger are very much uh, similar in stature and importance to the history of our country. I think you can compare uh, Paul Kruger to maybe the George Washington of America and uh, Hendrik, but don't know who you could compare him to because I don't know that America's ever had someone as articulate and intelligent as uh, Hendrik Wurt in these ways. Now, Hendrik Wurt, first thing that's a bit of a surprise about him, he wasn't born in South he's actually born in the Netherlands. Now, his parents were very positive, very supportive of the Anglo, of the Boers in the Anglo-Boer War battles. He actually raised money for the Boers in his home district and uh, immediately after the war, 1903, he took his whole family and moved to Cape Town. So Henrik Wood was actually brought up in uh, Cape Town, first in the Lutheran Primary School in Weinberg, and later Weinberg Boys Junior School. And later, Henrik Wood moved to Bulawayo, and he went to the same school I went to. In fact, I remember when I was sitting in the Milton High School in Bulawayo, in the main hall, I was looking on the on the wall and there's these boards, honor boards, and one of the names on the honor board was um, H.F. Favut. And uh, having been the uh, the top prize for the whole country in English literature, and I said, is that the H.F. Favut who became Prime Minister South And Yes, they very proudly informed me the same. Now, it so happened that Henry Favut's father became an evangelist for the Dutch Reformed Church, a missionary to Bulawayo, and so... Henry Wood went to Milton High School where he excelled in everything, including being captain of the cricket team. And he, he also was offered the Byte Scholarship, which is a very prestigious Rhodesian scholarship for academics, which his family turned down because they decided to move to the Orange Free State, but uh, his fa- where his father ran a bookshop. And uh, interesting that uh, when Henry Wood finally matriculated, which is a school leaver certificate, he came first in Orange Free State and fifth in the whole of South Africa. So he's an academic genius, and people described him as uh, absolutely brilliant in every way. He passed with often 100% in exams, incredibly photographic memory, a graduated magna cum laude from University of Stellenbosch in 1921, an extraordinary person in, in every respect. And uh, what he did to really bring South Africa into its own to be a, a self-governing republic was quite historic. Um, well, Henry Wood became professor of sociology, of social welfare, psychology, and psychotechnique. He became professor and lecturer of these subjects. And uh, he only entered politics late in life. He didn't have political ambitions as far as we can see. And uh, it's an interesting, too, he's the only person I know who was offered a Rhodes Scholarship and turned it down. And uh, he was offered a Rhodes Scholarship to study in Oxford University, and he turned it down and chose instead to go to Germany in the 1920s and studied in Leipzig, and uh, Leipzig Institute of Experimental Psychology under some famous professors. Um, he also married his wife in Germany in 1927, uh, Betsy Schumburgi in Hamburg married her 7th of January 1927. So he chose to study in Germany rather than England for 
many reasons. The one thing is, of course, to him, Cecil John Rhodes epitomized the enemy. Uh, he didn't uh, have any warm, fuzzy feelings for England, who had just destroyed his um, home country of, of South Africa, Transvaal and the Free State. So he chose to go to Germany, which later his enemies would, of course, accuse him of being uh, sympathizers of national socialism and so on. Um, and he he was, of course, exposed to Germany of the Weimar Republic during his studies, and he was very sympathetic to the cause of nationalism in general, and he certainly epitomized the nationalist cause in South Africa. Uh, he was chairman of the debating society and of the philosophical society. Uh, he enjoyed hiking and playing tennis um, and was captain of the cricket team. Um, he also, after graduating, became a lecturer in logic. At Stellenbosch University, he got his doctorate in magna cum laude with greatest honors. And uh, his thesis for his doctorate was experimental study of the blunting of emotions. So he understood how psychological warfare worked. He understood um, man emotional manipulation, and that's why he was able to counter it and be unaffected by all the guilt manipulation being applied to South Africa during key time of the Cold War. And he led South Africa in uh, the beginnings of our fights against the Soviet Union and communist terrorism during the Cold War. So, so uh, what what we have in Hendrik Wurtz is somebody who early on had an opportunity to greatness offered to him through the Rhodes Scholarship. I don't know anyone else who refused the Rhodes Scholarship, but chose to rather work his way through a degree at Leipzig than to go to Oxford and get it all handed to him on a platter. And uh, there you can immediately see strength of character, and already he had a strong view of, of uh, independence. And uh, he rose above all his contemporaries to provide a policy and a solution and a vision to unite all the people of South Africa, English-speaking and Afrikaans-speaking, to participate and share in the wealth and the prosperity of the country on a permanent basis. And Dr. Favut often referred to the image of a piano, noting that for melodious harmony and, and sound, you need both the black and the white um, of the notes to be marked. And so in society, you need all different races to cooperate together in um, producing a harmonious society. And his emphasis was over and again, fairness and justice for all and free, uh, free choice, um, gradual emancipation of the black people to achieve political independence and economic interdependence at their own pace. And so he saw separate development as a temporary phase, not to dominate or discriminate, but to enable the black races to achieve uh, self-determination and independence uh, by coexistence, not by living together, but living side by side and working together. And so uh, he had a vision of a confederation of, of independent states throughout South Africa, unified in an economic union and for maybe national defense interests, but to be run by their own local areas, completely decentralized. He also wanted to bring about reconciliation between the English and the Afrikaans speakers. And so, amongst other things, he, he sought to suppress the teaching of the Anglo-Boer War and the British atrocities of the scorchers and concentration camps from the textbooks. He wanted that out of the schools because he didn't want... Uh, antagonism between the English and Afrikaans speakers in our country, but for the whites to be united. 
And so uh, he was very involved in trying to improve life for all in the country. But he was a, as he's described by Stephen Mitford Goodson, as an impeccable flow, foe of the international monetary order. He wanted to achieve complete self-sufficiency economically in South Africa without any dependence on banks and external foreign loans. And uh, that sort of explains why he was targeted for assassination. But um, says uh, Henrik Witt became professor of applied psychology, sociology, and social science at the University of Stellenbosch, uh, which he occupied for nine years. So he was a teacher, a lecturer, and very popular with the students, appointed head of the Department of Sociology and of Social Work. And uh, he was particularly concerned for the poor and wanted to uplift the poor. He had all kinds of personal involvements in lifting up um, those who were in poverty and in ghettos. Well, in 1936, he was invited to become editor of a new Afrikaans daily newspaper, Die Transvaler, or the Transvaler, Transvaal being the biggest of the four provinces in South Africa and the province which Paul Kruger used to be president of, the South African Republic, as it was called. So he was to be editor of an Afrikaans newspaper, and uh, it was not just to build the newspaper, to rebuild the National Party uh, that he was invited to this, because he's seen as such an important thinker. And so at this point, um, he showed himself uh, to be uh, strongly nationalist, but also to be against the British and especially the banking globalist agenda. Uh, so... <clears throat> Interestingly, um, at that point, Anton Rupert, who later became major globalist in South Africa, who was a tobacco merchant, applied for a position as a reporter on his newspaper. But uh, later, uh, he was rejected, and later Rupert said he had never wanted to work with Hendrik Wood anyway. And Anton Rupert became an arch enemy of Dr. Wood, played a leading role in the plot to assassinate him. Anton Rupert's one of the richest people in South Africa, one of the top tobacco um, uh, salesman. He, he owns major uh, tobacco companies like uh, Peter Stuyvesant and so on. Well, uh, Anton Rupert became later leader of National Party in the Western Cape and led a campaign to try and destroy Hendrik Wood, calling it Favut Must Fall was the name of, of the campaign, which reminds us of a whole lot of campaigns more recently of roads must fall and fees must fall and science must fall, which is part of the cancel culture movement that we're facing today. But um, intriguingly enough, um, when, the, when the Second World War broke out, um, of course, Henrik Wood did not support South Africa's involvement in the war. Why should we want to fight for our previous enemies against our previous allies? And it's nothing to do with South Africa. It's not South African the South African Defence Force meant to defend our borders. Our borders are not at any risk. And this has nothing even to do with Britain. But interestingly, during the um, Second World War, uh, which, by the way, the South African President at the time, South African Prime Minister at the time, um, who was James Barry Herzog, a judge and a previous general during the First Anglo-Boer War, um, James Barry Herzog refused to declare war on Germany and was ousted in a coup by Jan Smuts, General Jan Smuts, uh, who had lost the previous five elections against um, 
James Barry Herzog, who was the most popular prime minister in South Africa's history. He won five elections in a row to be prime minister and was prime minister for 15 years. So James Barry Herzog, under which South Africa grew dramatically and under whom we got our orange, white and blue flag and national anthem of the stem or the voice. Um, James Barry Herzog refused to declare war in Germany and so was removed forcibly from office by General Jan Smuts without an election, without a referendum. The most popular prime minister in South Africa's history was just removed by the man who had lost every election for the previous five elections against him. And Jan Smuts was without a doubt a pawn of the Zionists and a pawn of the international bankers. Jan Smuts was a personal friend of, of Winston Churchill. And his first action once he became head of South Africa, uh, General Jan Smuts ordered 54 tons of South Africa's gold reserves uh, valued at something like 128 billion pounds to the, in today's value, 20 million pounds at the time, ordered all of our gold that was above ground shipped to Simonstown and loaded onto the USS Quincy, a British, uh, an American battle cruiser, on the request of British Prime Minister Jans, uh, Winston Churchill to be shipped to New York, where uh, the US Federal Reserve Bank took it in. And this helped finance the Lend-Lease program of, of America, supplying vast amounts of weapons, not only to Britain, but also to the Soviet Union. And so South Africa's gold, without any discussion in Parliament, without being voted by the population, without even being reported in our papers, it was done by at midnight. Um, at night, they were loading up the USS Quincy, which took the gold off to the US Federal Reserve Bank in New York. And uh, intriguing... Uh, that the Rothschild-owned bank got South Africa's gold by unilateral decision by Churchill, communicated to Jan Smuts, who, without representing the interests of South Africa, sent our gold off to New York to help pay for all the weapons that were going to be sent to Joseph Stalin to save the Soviet Union during Operation Barbarossa. Well, during the Second World War, there was a group started in South Africa called the Osovar Brunfok, or the Ox Wagon Sentinel, OB for short, and they were set up as an Afrikaans cultural organization in order to oppose South Africa's involvement in the Second World War. Well, interestingly enough, Dr. Vavut was convinced that the Osvald Brandfuck was a false flag deception operation run by Jan Smuts' security forces, and that proved to be true, that Osvald Brandfuck attracted anyone who was against Jan Smuts's government, which of course many would even question its legitimacy, overthrowing the uh, democratically elected popular Prime Minister Herzog and replacing it with the very unpopular Jan Smuts, who was perceived even at that stage as a pawn of the globalists and of the bankers. After all, it's Jan Smuts who brought the Reserve Bank of the Rothschilds into South Africa to put us at continual owing massive debts to the globalists. So the Osava Brunfuck did a few pointless acts of sabotage and uh, Pavut attacked the Osava Brunfuck in his editorials in the Transvaal magazine and called them agents, provocateurs employed by Smuts. And one of the agent provocateurs employed by Smuts was B.J. Foster, who later took a pivotal role in the assassination of Prime Minister Pavut when he was Minister of Police and he became the Prime Minister immediately following um, Hendrik Vought. 
and B.J. Foster was apparently a spy for um, Smuts uh, in the Oslo Brandfurt to spy on the Afrikaners who were detained for the duration of the war because of their opposition to involvement on the British side. So they did all sorts of bizarre things. One of the things was Oslo Brandfurt tried to kidnap and assassinate Henrik Wood. Um, uh, their masked assailants came with pistol and sawn of shotgun into his offices to uh, um, take him into custody to kidnap the editor of the Transvaler. But fortunately, um, there was a Stormjahr or a, a stormtrooper who had been arrested by the police who tipped off the police. And so a special branch car full of police arrived just in time to prevent the kidnapping and to rescue Vivit from this possible assassination or kidnapping. Well, interestingly, Vivit was offered an opportunity to stand for the National Party in an election, but he chose not to. He stayed on as editor of the Transvaal, believing he could be more used to the party um, as editor than he could as a member of parliament. Interestingly, after the war, 1947, when General Smuts invited the British royal family to come to Cape Town and to tour South Afghan Rhodesia, um, basically to thank the Dominion for the invaluable help during the Second World War. Um, during this royal visit, actually, my father catered for the royal family at uh, the hotel at Victoria Falls, Victoria Falls Hotel. Uh, but um, this was, of course, uh, the emperor, uh, King George VI, and the queen, along with Princess Margaret and Princess Elizabeth, who later became Queen Elizabeth, 1947. Well, General Smuts had requested the British royal family to come to South Africa in the hope that they would improve his prospects of being re-elected in the next year's general election, 1948. And uh, so he wanted to improve his popularity, being associated with the royal family, being photographed with them and all this. But interestingly, um, Dr. Wood published that this whole tour is just deployed by Smuts, who's a toady of the international bankers and the globalists, and uh, that this is doubtless a political move with the eye to the next year's elections. And uh, he decided to basically ignore the royal visit. And about the only commentary in the Transvaal magazine was a sultry paragraph, the presence of certain visitors today will cause some dislocation of traffic. And uh, this can also be compared to when he was at the University of Stellenbosch in May 1925, Dr. Wood was a lecturer in psychology, and he was invited to attend a reception held in honor of the Prince of Wales at that time, uh, who would have been Prince Edward, but he chose to refuse to attend the reception held in honor of the Prince of Wales because of his opposition to what the British government had done to South Africa, and uh, he didn't support it in the First or the Second World War. So you can see a man who had strong views. Well, many people have caricatured Henry Kavut as the architect of apartheid. And many times you'll hear him described as the architect of apartheid and the father of apartheid, but that's not true. So Stephen Goodson gives a bit of a history of apartheid here, showing that apartheid was not something that Kavut started, but something that he refined and, and turned into something more positive towards the black people. So historically, he points out that the Minister of Native Affairs um, was uh, originally, a lot of these posts were actually dated back to the Dutch and the British. So um, interestingly, 
1948, Henry Ford stood in the constituency of Alberton uh, to get elected, and then he became a senator, and he was made leader of the Nationalists in, in the Senate, and he was appointed Minister for Native Affairs in 1950. And uh, interesting, Henrik Wood did a deep study of Bantu institutions, traditions, and thought processes, and he encouraged his officials to learn at least one African language. He, in fact, would sit in the garden with his gardener on Saturdays and teach his gardener how to read and write. And nobody did more to improve education for the black people of South Africa than Henrik Wood. He massively increased, I think he quadrupled literacy rates in South Africa when he was um, head of uh, Native Affairs. But to give the history, Stephen Goodson points out that in 1685, Simon van der Stel, governor of the Cape under the Dutch, passed a law prohibiting miscegenation between different races. And in November 1808, the Earl of Caledon, uh, the British governor of the Cape of Good Hope, instituted also passed laws. Uh, the Hottentot Code. The London Convention of 1884, signed by the High Commission of South Africa, Sir Hercules Robinson, uh, permitted natives to move within the country uh, or leave as long as they had a pass system. So the pass laws didn't start with Favot or the National Party. It started with the Dutch and the British. And then it was also uh, Sir Godfrey Yeatman Lugden, chairman of the South African Native Affairs Commission, who drew up a report which recommended the separation of black South Africans and white South Africans as occupiers of land and as voters, having separate voters' roles and separate um, areas. And this was adopted by Lord Alfred Milner, governor of the Transvaal and Orange River colonies, uh, during the uh, British occupation of the Transvaal and Free State. So um, Lord Milner had a hand in those uh, separate areas and separate voters' roles as well. And 10% of the apartheid or separate development laws were actually passed by the Bota Smut uh, administrations who were widely perceived as um, tools for the British government. And so under Prime Minister Bota and Prime Minister Smut, who were the British, they wore British army uniforms in the First World War, and they mobilized South Africa to invade German Southwest Africa and so on. Uh, they were the ones who instituted 10% of these apartheid re regulations. Now, the hectares increased amongst the blacks. They gave 13% of the country's land to black populations, and they got the highest rainfall and the most uh, fertile lands too, and some of the most mineral-rich as well. Most of the white areas were semi-desert, arid, very low rainfall, such as in the Karoo and the Kalahari Desert. And intriguing that um, the separate development gave the blacks some of the best land in South Africa, um, like the Trans Sky, which is very fertile, very high rainfall on the slopes of the Drakensberg Mountains. Drakensberg meaning the Dragon Mountains. So uh, Henrik Verwoerd in 1963, uh, when he opened up um, the Transform Congress National Party, he spoke of the need for good neighborliness, that um, we should develop the black areas as protectorates under South African guardianship with the goal of them achieving full independence and economic prosperity. In fact, he even suggested that the neighboring countries of 
Swaziland, Lesotho and Botswana, who were then under the British, should be placed under South African guardianship, saying, we are sure that we would be able to lead them quicker and better to independence and economic prosperity than Britain ever could. And uh, intriguing that Britain gave neighboring countries such as Botswana, Swaziland, Lesotho, economic independence, but then opposed South Africa doing the same to black nations within its borders, such as Transkei for the Causa, Zuland for the Zulu, and so on. He said South Africa has no territorial ambitions over neighboring protectorates or in areas where blacks are the majority, wanted good, healthy, prosperous neighbors. And their policy was South Africa doesn't want to be the leader of Africa, but wants to be its servant, a provider of knowledge, services, and aid, and that South Africa would help its neighbors to advance. And he was also able to point out that whereas in North America and Australasia, the indigenous populations were largely eradicated and declined under the Canadian American and Australian populations. That wasn't the case in South Africa. In South Africa, blacks had massively increased in population, 10 times the number, because of increased life expectancy, better farming methods, and advanced medical uh, facilities made available by the white settlers in South Africa. And uh, so he pointed out that if they had followed the policies of Australia and Canada and the United States, there would be much less black people living in South Africa today than, than there are, and uh, they wouldn't be outnumbering us. As um, the whites actually stopped the blacks from exterminating one another in genocidal uh, intertribal wars, and uh, what we had done to increase population and life expectancy. So the first two promises of South Africa, the Union of South Africa under British control was General Louis Butter and General Jan Smuts who were also firm supporters of separate developments as well. And so Stephen Goodson quotes from Louis Boutre, who was a British-supported Prime Minister of South Africa, the placing of races on equal footing will never bring about satisfaction. Another direction must be taken. The solution is to be found in the expansion of the right to the natives. We must give these people a certain amount of self-government under the supervision of whites so that they can work themselves upwards. And... Uh, General Smuts said the same sort of thing, that separate development was essential, let them govern themselves under our supervision, but the goal is to bring them to a point where they can be self-governing and, and independent. And so General Smuts stated in 1917, while member of the British Imperial War Cabinet, the political ideas which apply to our white civilization largely do not apply to administration of native affairs a practice grown up in South Africa of creating parallel institutions, giving the natives their own separate institutions on parallel lines with institutions for whites. It's useless to try and govern black and white in the same system, to subject them to the same institutions of government and legislation. They are different, not only in color, but in mind and in political capacity and in the political institutions, which should be different, while always proceeding for the goal of self-government. To create all over South Africa where there are any considerable native communities, independent self-governing institutions for them. That is our policy. He said, we will have white communities who will govern themselves separately according to accepted European principles. And so even in 1929 at Oxford University, General Smuts repeated these ideas of separate development, which were not considered slanderous or scandalous, but perfectly acceptable uh, in the uh, world at that time.
And uh, in the tell, Sir Theophilus Shepson, the British Secretary for Native Affairs, who spoke fluent Khorasan Zulu, introduced the policies of apartheid called separate development. And he maintained tribal customs, tribal law. He didn't try to enforce white civilization on the black areas. And he said everyone would agree with the principle enunciated by the minister. It's in the best interest of Europeans and natives that points of social contact contact should be reduced to least amount of friction. Now, Lord Luggard, the Governor General of Nigeria, first introduced principles of separate development in the British colonial West Africa in Nigeria. And Luggard's policy was African people's own social and political institutions, their chiefs and so on, the products of centuries of accumulated experience and wisdom should be preserved, strengthened and modernized in the evolutionary manner. And so one of Lord Luggard's dictums in Nigeria was never try to turn an African black into an Oxford blue. And so what Salafka was doing was not unique um, and it wasn't in any way against the standards of its time. It was seeking to do what was best for the native populations. And so Hendrik of Wood's predecessors had built up the laws of separate development over 300 years before Hendrik of Wood even entered politics. So to blame him for being the architect of things that Sir Theophilus Shepson and Lord Milner and Lord Lagarde had developed seems absolutely bizarre. And so we had laws such as the Immorality Act of 1949, the Prohibition of Mixed Marriages Act 1949, the Group Areas Act of 1950, providing for separate residential areas. All of these things had been in place well before Hendrik Wood came to power. Now, in a speech he gave to the South Africa Club in 1961, Henrik Wurt explained the first settlers, when they came, did not come as colonizers, but they came and occupied vacant land, empty land. The first encounter with black people was in 1779 at the Great Fish River in the Eastern Cape, over a thousand miles from Cape Town. And that whites never stole any land from blacks and never appropriate any of the areas, contrary to what happened in Australia, Canada, and the United States, he might add. Blacks did not develop themselves and they sought, along with other black foreigners, work in white areas and the food security and the benefits of civilization, like health services and schools. They didn't demand political rights. They came to benefit from white civilization in white areas. And they were often fleeing from tyranny of their chiefs and um, genocidal intertribal warfare, and they were provided protection from the whites. And this can be pointed out particularly for the Khoisan, the Hottentots and the Bushmen, whose civilization used to stretch all over East Africa, all the way up to Kenya, but they were exterminated wherever the Bantu or black races came. And the only places in the world today where you'll find the Hottentots and the Bushmen, or what they call the Khoisan now, are in South Africa and Southwest Africa, where they were protected by the whites. And in every war between the uh, blacks and the whites, the Khoisan or the Bushmen and the Hottentots were allied to the whites and fought with them because they recognized that their survival was at stake, that if the blacks took over, they would be hunted down like animals and uh, enslaved, as happens even today up in Avamberland, where Bushmen are treated as slaves or hunted for sport by the local black tribes of the Avamber, which explains why during the uh, war in Southwest Africa, the Bushman Battalion were one of the most ferocious enemies of the Swampo terrorists, 
because uh, they would they saw that they had real axe to grind. In fact, a friend of mine who was an officer in the 3-1 battalion or 201 battalion, the Bushman's battalion, the white officers had to protect the lives of these Swapo terrorists who were captured because it would not be in the nature of the Bushmen normally to let the communist terrorists that they captured live. And so uh, it was the whites who saved the lives of these Swapo communist terrorists um, in the Bushman's battalion in particular. So that's just a bit of an aside from my point of view. But um, back to Stephen Mitford's comments in his book. So in his maiden speech as a senator in 1948, Henrik Wood laid down his policy of separate development. He said there's two extremes, total integration, like the Portuguese would work on, and total segregation, which at that stage was being used in America, in the South. And he said, that's not advisable. We want to take a middle path. And the middle path was coexistence, working in parallel communities uh, next to and close to one another. And so he said each should be able to own land in their own respective territories. And so his goal was to replace poverty in the homelands with um, with advanced farming methods. He said moving people from rural areas into cities, into slums, is not a solution. We need influx control to protect uh, people from pouring into communities where there's not enough jobs or facilities or electricity, water, schools, and so on. And so the past laws were primarily to protect um, people in urban areas from developing into slums. And so he regulated migrant labor in the urban mining areas where people came to work, uh, but they went back to an area. So to give an example, I know that there are something like 3 million seasonal laborers from Italy who would go and work in France uh, each year, as uh, happened in the 60s. And here pointed out that these Italians who go and work as migrant workers in France didn't get any political rights or citizenship in France. They enjoyed those back in Italy where they returned afterwards. And so he said, what we need to do is have that kind of migrant workers in South Africa where blacks who want to come to white areas for work maintain their citizenship and their municipal rights in their areas and their homelands and not try to displace those who are hosting them and providing them with work temporarily. And uh, he pointed out that Lesotho, or Basutu land, which was a British protectorate, completely surrounded by South Africa, their population continued to come into the Orange Free State for work, but they had returned to Lesotho land, which was their home. And uh, interestingly, during the mining expansion, People walked sometimes from a far field as the Congo and Malawi to get a job in the South African mines. And originally they were given very good, excellent accommodation, working facilities with all kinds of, and I've seen these places where they had their cinemas and their theatres and their place for dancing and all types of sports and their beer halls. And they'd have uh, meat served every day. They'd get excellent meals served to them three times a day. They'd be all the expense would be paid for, but they'd also get a certain amount of pocket money, so it's called, to spend as they wanted. There were shops and uh, on the mining towns, but a portion of the salary was being paid to their family back in their hometown or village in Malawi, Zambia, Mozambique, wherever. And uh, an account was being set up for them, which when they left, they'd get the savings account or, or what, what do you call building society bank book where 
a whole lot of their money had been saved up. So they'd, they'd leave with a whole lot of money. They could, before they left, go and buy themselves suits and um, transistor radios and bicycles or whatever they wanted. And they'd come back to their village, a rich and influential person, and their wife or wives and children had been well provided for while they were in the mines. The chief got a portion as well of tax, and the government, of course, of the country also got benefits. Well, somewhere along the line, white liberals in the South African Parliament complained that uh, this was paternalistic, suggesting that these miners couldn't administer the money well enough themselves and insisted that all their money be paid every week or month to the workers in Johannesburg, Soweto, wherever they happened to be based, where they were on the mines. Now, the result of this was that the families back in their villages were no longer supported, the chief and the country didn't get the benefits, and the man, in many cases, uh, got himself another wife or wives or girlfriends in Soweto or Johannesburg and didn't go back to their village and uh, squandered the money. And when they le- when they finished, they'd wiped out all their money. They had no savings. So here's a case of the compassions of the wicked are cruel. That in trying to um, apparently help the workers, they actually hurt them and hurt their families and their communities in the village and their countries dramatically. So that's just an example of how the modern liberals uh, wrecked what was a working system with migrant laborers before. And uh, the problem was tremendous amount of vice in the cities. These miners had lots of money, uh, suddenly seeing all kinds of parasitic vices built up around prostitution, drinking houses, gambling and the like. And a lot of it's wiped out and, and destroyed. Well, interestingly enough, um, Henrik Wurtz massively increased the life expectancy and the health, the literacy and the uh, income of black people during his tenure as Minister of Native Affairs. And uh, he made things easier for people in many ways, like abolishing regional pass laws, introducing a standard identity document, and that uh, migrant laborers had been a service and employer for 10 years or lawful employment in the area for 15 years, could remain in an urban area without a permit and he had all kinds of benefits that came in. Well, in 1950, Professor Tomlinson, an agricultural economics um, lecturer at the University of Stellenbosch, was appointed to make a thorough survey of all the social economic development of the nation's reserves. And he produced the Commission for the Socio-Economic Development of Bantu Areas within the Union of South Africa in 1954. And... In 1956, Dr. Foote discussed this report in Parliament and proposed establishment of independent black homelands within the boundaries of South Africa. And so he put forward a whole national policy of decentralization of massive investment in these black homelands where they would be um, having industries developed there. But he wanted to stop uh, the Anglo-American and other big businesses to go in and take over these homelands. You want the black people to own the land and to be able to develop it there. Yes, we can help them build up, but the factories and industries in these areas need to be owned by the local black people. And so he was opposed by the liberals who wanted to have their big businesses and factories go in and own and control and take over control over these independent homelands. So just as he did not want blacks to be owning land in white areas, he didn't want whites owning land in black areas or owning shops in the black areas, which would take away their income or exploit them in any way. And so he aimed to set up big industries either close to the homelands or inside them, Transkai, Siskai, 
Upper Putatswana, Penda, and uh, to have subsidized railway rates, tax concessions, to build up employment in the areas where the black people were. And uh, interestingly, the opposition party, Smuts's old United Party, uh, they had allowed vast amounts of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of blacks to stream into urban areas without providing adequate accommodation, amenities, plumbing, electricity, education, health, and so on. And so Henrik Wood embarked on a massive program of slum clearance, replacing these hideous crime zones with neatly laid out townships with houses built on a plot, each with a garden and with dedicated railway connections and with schools and parks and um, educational and sports facilities, sports grounds and so on, and dividing them into ethnic areas to prevent friction between different tribes who often fought one another, and to facilitate provision of education in a mother tongue, whether it be uh, Sutu or Tswana or Venda or Zulu, uh, Indibeli, Kosa uh, and so on. And so these um, these homelands and townships were set up on a very strong basis. Interesting enough, to this day, a house built in the Favut days still stands, whereas so-called houses built during the Mandela days have fallen apart already. So it's a bit of a joke in the, in the township areas. You know, well-built houses are houses built during the Favut era in the 60s. Badly built ones are the ones built under Mandela and Joe Slover when he was minister of, of um, uh, lands and and buildings and so on. And uh, interesting how the communists, whatever they do for the people falls apart and doesn't work. Um, bridges they build are washed away in the rains. Uh, plumbing they set up uh, stop working. Uh, electrical power stations that the communists have built in recent days don't work within a few months. Whereas things that were set up like the Hendrikovut hydroelectric plant dam are still providing us with electricity 50, 60 years later. So people in, in the townships know that Hendrikovut has done more for the black people than anyone else in history. I've heard black people say to me that Hendrikovut built more houses for black people than the ANC under Mandela and Mbeki and Ramaphosa have done since 1994. And he had much less time to do it and a much smaller budget. Nevertheless, what he made and built was better. So um, Hendrikovut provided more and more land for the black areas, and they had the best areas, but his concern was they don't overgraze it, and to fight against soil erosion, he organized for lots of white farmers to come and help them with farming techniques and to protect the land from being overgrazed or to get soil erosion, such as when people plow downhill, which is easier, that accelerates the depletion of the topsoil and creates massive dongas and ravines and wipes out the farming. And so he was teaching, um, doing your farming with contours instead of uh, going downhill and how to preserve your topsoil. Um, his goal was also not only to prevent overgrazing and soil erosion, but to provide all black areas with schools, improved social health and welfare services where they would have police, but it would be their own police, post office, railway officials, teachers, social workers. And so his Bonsal Authorities Act of 1951 created the legal basis for self-determination of all ethnic and linguistic groups and traditional homelands in South Africa. They set up seven different radio stations for the seven different African languages, giving each language their own radio station and preparing for independence. 
um, of each of these lands. That was the goal. And so um, he set aside, in 1956, an area of 120,000 square miles, or 311,000 square kilometers, for population of, well, it could accommodate a population of 19 million, um, but, um, and that was to be the independent homeland of Transkei, and uh, self-governed by 1963, independent by 1970s. And so he set up a Group Areas Act where unsanitary uh, and overcrowded, unsafe slum areas were replaced with um, model communities and um, compensation was always provided for all properties acquired. And there was no forced removal in the sense that people had places taken away from them. If they were moved from one home, they were moved to a better home and they were compensated for the one that was taken. And uh, they spent millions and millions of rands on rehousing people out of slums into better conditions. This would have been called slum clearance and social upliftment if it was done in another country. But being done in South Africa, they called it apartheid forced removals. So there were some very unfair reports on this. But Henrik Wood um, had uh, a goal to improve, as he said, human dignity by coexistence and not living together, but living parallel uh, as good neighbors. One of his slogans was, Good fences make good neighbors. And uh, interestingly enough, when he spoke in black areas, uh, he was given standing ovations. The colored people uh, of the Western Cape gave him standing ovations and uh, said that their safety was only under him, that they were, they feared if a black majority government took over, that they, as a minority of people who were descent from the coin, the sand might get oppressed and exterminated. So Dr. Foot. Uh, then abandoned the previous policy, which regarded Indians as, as just temporary, but regarded the Indians in South Africa, the British had brought out in 1860s as permanent part of South Africa's population. He set up a National Indian Council uh, with 20 members to represent the interests of the Indians, and the Indians in South Africa have the highest standard of living anywhere in the world. Some of the richest Indians in the world are the Indians living in South Africa. We've got a very strong Hindu community here. Of, even Mahatma Gandhi once was in South Africa. And uh, he gave them the South African Indian Council with 25 members, now a statutory body since 1968. And uh, in 1950, when Henry Ford became head of Native Affairs, he was aware of the fact that the education system was inadequate and unsuitable. And he said, you've got to recognize the inherent differences between the races. You can't impose a Western Cambridge curriculum on black people in rural areas. And so uh, he did a whole lot of studies and found it absolutely essential to have different types of curriculum and textbooks and worked for a much better education system, which greatly increased literacy in, in South Africa. As the black people were getting more illiterate, he was concerned that the children might look down their parents who weren't literate. So he organized night schools for the parents that they could get taught and, and become literate. And at one stage, because of shortage of classrooms, uh, schools were having a morning classes, afternoon classes, and evening classes. But uh, during his time, he increased the parents' involvement in education. They got free textbooks, by the way, and free meals at school. Um, he put a great emphasis on mother tongue education. People are taught in the home language. 
1961, he had 4,000 black parents serving on 496 school boards and 34,000 black parents serving on the school committees. And uh, by 1963, Henry Kibbutz had established 8,463 schools amongst blacks with 29,000 teachers. And expenditure on black education increased 194%. Far more was being spent on black education than white education. And when people try to speak of Bantu education disparagingly, in fact, many black people now recognize they got better education under Favot's apartheid than they're getting now under the ANC. In fact, you've got a lot of proof of that because the leaders of the ANC are people who received the education under Favot's education system. And that includes people like Nelson Mandela got his education in the universities he set up, like uh, University of Forte. Um, in fact, so did Mugabe came down to University of Forte. He got his education under a Favot's established black university. And so most leaders of the um, ANC today got the education, which is a superior education, uh, back under Favot's separate development. He also set up the universities of Zuland in 1960, University of the Western Cape for the Colored People in 1959, University of Baputitswan in 78, the Vista University in 1981, University of Bend in 1982, all equipped to the same high standards of international universities. Well, um, in 1959, the Prime Minister Stratum, Johannes Stratum, died in Cape Town. And so Favut was put forward as a candidate uh, to be a new Prime Minister of South Africa, 1958. He didn't make himself available, but others tried to persuade him to be. There were two other candidates, Advocate Swart and Minister of Justice Donjas, Minister of Interior. We had, um, they were also candidates to be Prime Minister, but Hendrik Wood received the majority of the votes and he became the next Prime Minister of South Africa. And uh, interesting that in a speech broadcast the nation, Dr. Wood announced his goal of forging unity between Afrikaans and English-speaking South Africans, who were still quite split because of the Anglo-Boer War, which had caused tremendous divisions in the country. You can imagine scorched earth um, concentration camp policies, there was a lot of brutality, executing of Boer prisoners of war because they weren't wearing uniforms. And of course, farmers didn't have uniforms. And so there was a lot of reason for some bitterness, but he wanted to bring that to an end. So one of his goals was he would bring South Africa to being a republic and said, we are two nations in one state. And uh, we can't have this business of being constitutional monarchy where half of South Africans are seeing their allegiance to Britain and the other half to South Africa. And so to unite the English and Afrikaans-speaking South Africans, he suggested we have a referendum on whether South Africa should become a republic or not. And he said, we'll have a give and take. English speakers must give up the monarchy and Afrikaan speakers will give up having an executive president, which the Transvaal and the Free State used to have, will maintain the prime minister system, not having an executive president. And the national anthem wouldn't be changed and the flag wouldn't be changed. And South Africa would remain a member of the British Commonwealth. That was his goal. And so he spoke around the country and the vote was yes, no. Are you in favor of a republic for the union? And the majority, 52% voted yes. And for uh, what was telling his supporters, do not uh, get too excited about celebrating the victory. You don't want to alienate the people who voted. Uh, no, we want this country to be for all the republicans, for all citizens. 
and so he encourages people to be restrained and to be thoughtful and considerate. And uh, South Africa did become a republic, 1961, 31st of May, and the date was well chosen because the 31st of May is the date when the Peace of Rennekin was signed, which brought peace ending the Anglo-Boer War. And the 31st of May is when the Union of South Africa was started, kind of a shotgun wedding, when Britain, who had won on the battlefield, forced the Boer Republics of the Transvaal and Free State to unite with the British colonies of Natal and the Cape. And so 31 May was Union Day. It was also Peace of Rennekin Day. Now he made 31 May Republic Day. And so taking the date which had been a sore point to many Afrikaans people, now made it a point for celebration. So again, bring about unity with the same date, 31 May. Mm. And uh, it was about this time that uh, the British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan came on his winds of change speech, where he was basically on the behest of the bankers, coming to order the colonies that you've got to hand over to the um, next dictators and so on, uh, because this is what the international bankers want. We can't continue to afford to subsidize Africa. Africa is going to have to become basically uh, the colonies of the international bankers, the international monetary fund, and so on. And uh, in fact, it would plunge all the territories of Africa into permanent irredeemable debt to the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund and the Rothschilds. And uh, when he came to South Africa, Harold Macmillan was actually quite rude and insulted his hosts in his speech, didn't even provide the customary a copy of his speech ahead of time to the host prime minister. And uh, uh, he basically insulted South Africa with his winds of change speech and, uh, and spoke a lot of nonsense because he said, the impression I have formed since I left London a month ago is of the strength of the African national consciousness in its different forms. It's happening everywhere. The winds of change are blowing throughout the continent. But this speech was written for him before he left London. And it's had nothing to do with his observations. And on the ground, he didn't see any of what he claims to have seen. And uh, this was responded to by Henrik Wood, who didn't have the advantage of having a speech and writing ahead of time. But he was a very impromptu, capable speaker who thought on his feet. And uh, he stood up and pointed out the uh, that we, Europe, we call ourselves Europeans, but actually we represent the white man of Africa. We, and only we, brought civilization here. We made the development of black nationalism possible. We brought them to education. We showed them this way of life. We brought them industrial development. We brought them the ideals by which Western civilization has developed itself. The white man who came to Africa, perhaps to trade in some cases, perhaps to bring the gospel, has remained to stay, particularly we in the southernmost portion of Africa. We have such a stake here that this is our only motherland. We have nowhere else to go. This is our home. We settled the country bare, and the Bantu came into this country and settled certain portions for themselves afterwards. And it is in line with the thinking of Africa to grant those fullest rights, which we also with you admit all people should have. We believe in providing these rights for these people to the fullest degree in that part of South Africa, which their forefathers found for themselves and settled in. Similarly, we believe in balance. We believe in allowing exactly those same full opportunities to remain within the grasp of the white man who has made all this possible. And we see ourselves as part of the Western world. We are a white state in Africa, and we want to grant full independence and self-determination for black men in our midst. And so um, 
Hindu Kaput on his feet provide a good response to Macmillan's bankster globalist speech diatribe in which he basically was trying to say, you whites have no future in Africa, get up and go. He's saying, no, but this is our home, we're not going anywhere. And uh, the local people need us and we are going to stay to help them to succeed and to uh, uh, go forward. So he also, um, in speaking with Harold Macmillan, found Macmillan to be um, really a tool of the globalists and uh, a shallow man without re any real understanding of what was going on. Very interesting that it's also put here that Harold Macmillan was sent out um, with the instructions of the globalists. And uh, at the, just before he arrived, the CIA orchestrated riots at Sharpville, and the MI6 had planned an assassination of Dr. Foote. And all those I'll get into in the next program, but the involvement of the CIA and the MI6 in fomenting revolution in South Africa and two different separate assassination attempts on Henry Kivot, um, in line, in connection with the international bankers and the globalist Anglo-American so on. All of this is brought out in Stephen Mitford Goodson's uh, book. Um, extraordinary, as he points out, the role of the same Communist Party doctor, Dr. Solly Jacobson, a neurologist in Johannesburg, using MK Ultra, was dealing with both men who tried to assassinate Henry Kivot. There was first... Um, Pratt, who shot him in the face, and uh, uh, Pratt was a patient of Dr. Solly Jacobson, who was a member of the Southern Communist Party, and who was being controlled by Joe Slovo, or Yashal Michelle Slovenik, uh, to give his real name, who was a KGB colonel, and uh, the handler for Mandela and for uh, this uh, Solly Jacobson. So Jacobson was the same neurologist who was dealing with both people who attempted to assassinate Favot, including Stefandis, who finally stabbed him to death. I mean, how's that for coincidence? So there's all kinds of intriguing factors that come, both the failed assassination attempt when he is shot and the successful assassination attempt when he is stabbed, but that the role of the globalists was coming from because he was developing a country that was so economically strong, so free of debt, and Favot's uh, Unforgivable sin was when he got the Hook Commission to look into the role of Anglo-American and uh, the Rothschild banks in controlling South Africa and alternatives to the South African Reserve Bank. And uh, when he was moving to get South Africa off the usury system and into a state bank that wasn't using a foreign Rothschild control bank, not using interest and so on, um, that's when the decision was made that this man has to go. South Africa is becoming too economically strong, and uh, the successes of the South Africans in developing independent black states that were economic successes was a terrible contrast and rebuke to the failures of the independent nations that the British Empire and the French were setting up all over Africa and the Belgians, which were dysfunctional states falling apart in the civil war with multiple coup d'etats and uh, UN intervention and so on. So South Africa was too successful, too strong economically, and not in debt to anyone. And so they had to get rid of the prime minister who was leading South Africa in this extremely um, forward-looking way that, that showed the way for Africa, a way of freedom and a way free from international debt. So that's just the first part of this. Back to you, Andrew. 
Thank you, Peter. Yes, so um, yes, a bit of a bumper show for you today, folks. So uh, we'll wrap it up here, and we'll be back uh, next week with uh, part two. So I want to thank Peter so much for joining us today on a program entitled The Real Story of South Africa's Greatest Prime Minister, Hendrik Verwood, and Why He Was Assassinated, part one. I want to thank all of you for listening. I'll be back with you all tomorrow. Until then, folks, have a wonderful day. Bye for now.